you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 18. For those just joining us today, we've been walking through the book of Revelation since uh, March, and we are up to chapter 18 this morning. We're going to be looking at uh, the whole chapter, verses 1 to 24. My grandfather, my last living grandparent, passed away this past January. He was, uh, I think he was in his early 90s, sorry, 93, I believe. Uh, As far as the timing goes, I, I, I can look back and see it as a great blessing because he passed away just before COVID hit. And that allowed my family to gather together in Uh, celebrate, to remember, to mark his passing, to grieve together. And part of that time together was a time of hearing stories. And uh, not only hearing stories, but just for me to remember stories about him. He was a teenager uh, when World War II began. He was was a German living in, born in uh, the Ukraine. And during the course of the war, Germany invaded and the German forces passed their village and things were good for a season. But when uh, Russia began to push back and the German army was retreating, he, along with many young able-bodied men, was forced at gunpoint into the German army. I remember reading and hearing all kinds of stories. And every time one of my boys would turn 17, I would just marvel at what he experienced in that season of his life. It's unbelievable. When the war ended, he survived. He made it through a couple years of fighting, trying to survive. And uh, when the war ended, he wanted desperately to find his family. And so he took a risk and he crossed into uh, the Russian zone in Europe. And on a train ride, as he was trying to keep his head down, he had Austrian papers uh, that had been created for him so he could pretend he was an Austrian citizen. Uh, two Russian soldiers confronted him on the train, and he was caught. They escorted him off of that train and onto another one that was heading to Brandenburg, where he was told he was going to be hung the next day as a prisoner of war, or as a, sorry, as a, as a war criminal. And uh, he lay there on, the, on his belly on the train floor as it went with two guards watching over him, uh, praying, telling God he'd, he'd, he'd survived the war, he, he wanted to live, and looking for an opportunity. And and uh, the train stopped just outside of Brandenburg. One of the guards stepped off for a moment. And the train began to move before that second guard came back. And so in a moment, he, as the train rolled out towards Brandenburg, he dove through a window and ran. And, and he's recounted in, in a, a book that he wrote for the family these stories of, of hiding during the day and running uh, at night just behind enemy lines trying to survive. It's, it's a remarkable story, and it... Every time I, I think about it, I'm amazed at the things that uh, not only he, but that generation, many in that generation have endured. Every morning, what we're going to see as we walk through chapter 18 is that every morning we wake up behind enemy lines. We wake up in Babylon. That's what our text will show us. And what, what we need to ask ourselves is what are we to do as disciples of Jesus when we recognize that, when we wake up and recognize that we are behind enemy lines. Now, uh, before we turn to the text and read it, I want to remind you of a few things. We are drawing towards the close of the Revelation. We'll probably finish here by the end of November if I've mapped it out correctly. 
In these pages, in the Revelation, Jesus pulls back the curtain. He he lifts off the cover so that we can see what is really real, so that we can see what is really true. There is more going on than we can perceive with our physical eyes. John, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, now an old man, in his mid-80s, has been exiled on a volcanic lump of rock in the Aegean Sea off the coast of present-day Turkey. And on the Lord's Day, as he's worshiping, Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up in his glory. And Jesus commissions John to write down what he sees and to send it to the seven churches of Asia. We've covered a lot of ground, and I'm not going to go over all of it. But most recently, we've walked through a series of images that portray the pouring out of God's wrath upon Babylon, that is, upon Rome, the city and the empire. In Revelation 16, we watched as seven angels received each a bowl containing the wrath of God, and each one of them in succession poured out that bowl. And after the seventh bowl of wrath is poured out, we read that with that, God's wrath was said to be complete. Now, I I noted at the time that we might have expected the revelation to draw to a close. God's wrath is complete, but, but it didn't end there. We continued last week in chapter 17, and we'll continue today in chapter 18. And what, what we recognize is that in chapter 17 and 18, uh, we do what we've done earlier in the Revelation. That is, God brings us back. It's kind of, we circle around and we, we see the same thing, only now from a different perspective, a different angle, a different focus. Uh, chapters 17 and chapters 18 really unpack, they flesh out for us the pouring out of that seventh bowl with which God's wrath is finally complete. Chapter 17 presented us with an extraordinary vision. Uh, John saw a woman, a prostitute, dressed in purple and scarlet, uh, bedecked with gold, precious stones, and pearls. Uh, She is riding on a scarlet beast with seven heads and ten horns, and she's drunk. She's got a cup in her hand. She's drunk. She's drunk on the blood of the saints. And shockingly, at the end of the vision, the end of chapter 17, suddenly we witness something Unexpected, The beast upon which she rode in the ten horns suddenly turn on her and destroy her. It's the end of her. This morning we move forward in Revelation chapter 18, which again, like 17, circles around and gives us another view of that seventh bull of God's judgment upon Rome. A different focus this time. A different reason highlighted for her judgment. If you have your Bibles, I invite you as I read, follow along please. Revelation chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great! She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries." Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion for her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. 
When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her, terrified at her torment. They will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves." They will say, the fruit you long for is gone from you. All your luxury and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. The merchants who sold these things and gained their wealth from her will stand far off, terrified at her torment. They will weep and mourn and cry out, Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to ruin. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? They will throw dust on their heads and with weeping and mourning cry out, woe, woe to you great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour she has been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea and said, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians, pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spells, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered upon the earth. I want to do three things with you in the time that we have together this morning. I want to first highlight the unique character of this chapter in the Revelation. Second, I want to lead you through its four parts and offer words of explanation so we understand exactly what we're looking at. And third, I want to spend some time reflecting with you on the, the challenge uh, and the implications of this text for us as hearers of the text today. So first, the unique character of chapter 18. As we've been making our way through the Revelation, I have regularly been emphasizing the character of this document as an apocalypse. Uh, that's the title of it, the apocalypse, the revelation. Literally, that's what the revela revelation means, apocalypse. It, it is a pulling back of the curtain, lifting off of the cover. And it, the apocalyptic is a, a genre. It is a, a type of literature. Uh, it was prevalent for about 400 years, 200 B.C. to 200 A.D. And the revelation is not the only apocalypse that we have uh, apocalyptic literature used symbols, it used images, it used numbers to communicate truth. Uh, we find other apocalyptic texts even within Scripture. In the book of Ezekiel, uh, we find some. In the book of Daniel, even in the New Testament, Mark chapter 13 is apocalyptic. This is a genre, and that's what we've been focusing on. We've seen a lot of that, a lot of imagery, a lot of symbols and numbers. Uh, this, this form of literature by which God is revealing truth to us, but... Uh, that said, this book is not only apocalyptic. 
It is not only an apocalypse. If you've been with us from the beginning, you'll remember that it's actually the blending of three different types of literature, three genres. It is also letter. Remember chapters 2 and 3, John writes messages from Jesus to seven specific churches. And so each one has that specific message, but really all of the messages are for all of them. And indeed, the whole revelation is a letter to those churches and to the churches through the century. It is an apocalypse using images and symbols and numbers. It is a letter, but it is also a prophetic word, a word of prophecy. If you were with us, you might remember back in chapter 1, verse 3, we read this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Uh, In the biblical world, prophecy does not mean prediction per se, though it sometimes includes that, but it means declaration. The bulk of biblical prophecy is not look what's coming, but rather listen to what God says. That's what prophecy is, a declaring of God's word. Thus saith the Lord. Now certainly, as I noted, sometimes God reveals things that are future. But but often prophets are simply declaring God's truth to God's people. God's word that, that often calls for a response. And such is true as we come to the book of Revelation. The revelation is this apocalyptic, prophetic letter. It it is a discipleship manual. Jesus' words to his people. And Jesus, Jesus wants to prepare his people. He wants to prepare the church for what looms on the horizon, a time of great suffering. He wants to call them to faithfulness, and he wants to warn them about compromise. Now look again at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud this word of prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it, And take to heart what is written. Take to heart, literally what that means is to keep, literally keep, that is obey it. We already hear the revelation and we are to obey it. We are to live this out, what Jesus is calling us to. Now I would contend that the the prophetic character of the revelation is nowhere more clear and obvious than it is in chapter 18. Look with me uh, at, at chapter 18. As you reflect on the kind of things that we have encountered thus far in our study of the Revelation, chapter 18 actually is fairly tame. It, it doesn't look that apocalyptic. In fact, other than the angel that we encounter in verse 1 and the angel we encounter in verse 21, which at some level we could say they're just kind of the furniture of the chapter, like they're part of the setting, they're important, but, but there's no vision of beasts and, and women. And, and I mean, we've, we've seen all kinds of symbols, dragons and there's, there's none of that. In fact, this chapter is, is so much more close to what we see in the Old Testament prophets. Remarkably similar, similar, in fact. I've noted, you might remember, the Revelation is comprised of 404 verses. And within those 404 verses, there are over 500 uh, allusions to other scriptures. Many of them Old Testament prophets. And that is true here. And we're not going to read a ton. I'm going to read two, two uh, passages to you just briefly. But if we would read all of those Old Testament prophets, uh, we would recognize the parallels particularly in this chapter. Listen, Isaiah 21. Here's what we read in verse 9. Look, here comes a man in a chariot with a team of horses, and he gives back the answer. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. Jeremiah 5. Sorry, Jeremiah 51, 6 and 7. Flee from Babylon. Run for your lives. Do not be destroyed because of her sins. It is time for the Lord's vengeance. He will repay her what she, deserve, uh, what she deserves. Babylon was a gold cup in the Lord's hand. She made the whole earth drunk. The nations drank her wine. Therefore, they have now gone mad. 
We can see all kinds of connections between those Old Testament texts and we could read on for quite a while and see more and more. Revelation chapter 18 stands in the tradition of the, the, the prophets. It is a, de- a declaration of what God says. Here, the Apostle John, now in his mid-80s, puts on his prophet hat, and he speaks in the form of Old Testament prophets. He, he speaks announcing God's word of judgment upon Rome and announcing God's word of warning to his people. Let's turn to the second thing we were going to do, and that is to walk through the text in its four parts, exploring it as we go. Uh, the first part of our text is, is comprised of verses 1 to 3. Let me read those verses to you again. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice, he shouted, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. This moment in the Revelation is one of the truly great moments in all of Scripture. Rome is at the height of its power and its glory. John, an old Jewish man now in his mid-80s, one of the disciples of Jesus who had followed Jesus around some 60 years earlier in the backwater uh, Galilee of, of Rome. has been deposited on this volcanic lump of rock 40 miles off the coast of the province of Asia to die. For Rome, he's not even worth the bother of putting to death. And John stands on this rock and he sings a funeral dirge over Rome. It's this amazing moment. This this. This old, exiled man singing about the funeral of Rome when it's at its glorious, mightiest moments. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great, he sings. Rome's fall still lies in the future, but it is so certain, it is so sure that John sings of its demise, its doom in past tense. What a moment. It's a moment anticipated earlier in the Revelation, chapter 14, remember verse 8, we encountered three angels. In verse 8, a second angel shows up, and we read this, a second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. That earlier declaration is fleshed out more fully here in, in chapter 18. A couple other things to note here. John sings of Rome becoming a haunt for wild animals and demons. What's that all about? Well, when cities are depopulated, they, they fall apart. They go wild. Vegetation and animals take over. We read this all the time. Isaiah 34, thorns will overrun her citadels, nettles and brambles her strongholds. She will become a haunt for jackals, a home for owls. Desert creatures will meet with hyenas and wild goats will bleat to each other. There the night creatures will also lie down and find for themselves places of rest. When Rome falls... The wild will take over vegetation and animals. That's a picture here of the end of Rome, the the demise, its doom. Second, the influence of Rome here is highlighted again. The influence that Rome has had on all the surrounding nations, the kings of the earth. For all the nations have drunk the wine of her adulteries. That is, it's not speaking about sexual sin and adultery here. It's speaking about unfaithfulness to God. Rome has been an influence for evil. 
She has led the nations astray. She's led them far from God. Third, John's funeral dirge over Rome highlights for us what has been hinted at earlier. Do you remember the prostitute that we met last week in chapter 17? This woman dressed in purple and scarlet, bedecked with gold and precious stones and pearls. Those were all signs of uh, tremendous wealth, wanton luxury, of excess. This woman symbolized, dressed this way, just is a symbol of, of excess luxury. But what was hinted at last chapter is now made explicit. One of the reasons for God's judgment upon Rome was because of Rome's oppressive economic policies and practices, which have enriched the empire, that have enriched the wealthy in the empire at the expense of many other peoples and nations. Let's turn our attention to the second part of the text, verses 4 to 8. Here, in this second part, there are two parts. First, a call to the people of God to, to come out, to those who are believers of Christ. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. There's this call to flee from Babylon, to, to get out, to not be, not be caught up in the judgment that will fall upon her, not get caught up in her ways. Now, we're going to come back to this because this really speaks to the, the implications of this text for us. But we need to recognize that God's people are to flee this influence, the, the influence, the allure of this woman, this prostitute, Babylon the Great. Second, there is a call for judgment upon Rome, beginning in verse 6. Now addressing, I would suggest, undesignated agents, probably I would suggest angels. They are to pay back to Babylon the Great, the prostitute, for what she has done. Give back as she has given. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. Now we do encounter here at this point something that might be a little bit troubling. Uh, it says twice in our text that she is to be paid back double. What's that all about? That, that can almost feel unjust. But here's what two scholars write in, in their commentary. Zeal for the vindication of God's righteousness and Old Testament prophecy have run away with John here. In saying, it's not that this is unjust at all. This is just an, a prophetic exaggeration. Uh, it is true, though, that, that Isaiah, also in Isaiah the prophet, when we read about Jerusalem and their sin, uh, we read about her receiving double for her sins. In the book of Exodus, there, there are a number of laws where if someone steals an animal, they are to pay back double. So this is a notion there, probably just being fleshed out here as this points to the fact that Rome will receive judgment that is, uh, that is due her. Give back as she has given. Uh, give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. Regardless, it is clear that Rome will fall, that Rome will experience God's judgment because of a number of reasons. Here we see for her arrogance and pride as well. She says, I am enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Can you see the incredible hubris, the incredible pride and arrogance of this nation? In fact, uh, Rome had named itself, the, the, the empire had named the city of Rome the eternal city. I will not mourn. I will be here forever. God will judge Rome for her pride, for her arrogance, also for her oppressive exploitation of people, her economic policies that oppress, that are unjust, and yes, for her role in killing the people of God. We come to the third part of the chapter, the central part of the text, 
the section that is comprised of three laments. Uh, They share the same opening line, Woe, woe to you, great city. Three times we read that on the lips of three different groups. Uh, We see three different groups. Verse 9, the kings of the earth. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth. And verse 17, I would say uh, the, the merchant marine. Sea captains, those making their living on the sea, not talking about people who fish. These are those who move cargo around the empire. So the kings of the earth, the merchants of the earth, and the merchant marine. These three groups have have partnered together in in their economic endeavors. Uh, They have all benefited from Rome's economic policies. And all three of them here in this central section of our text, they see Rome burning and they weep and they mourn. Verse 11 speaks of the merchants weeping. Why? Because no one buys their cargoes anymore. See, the kings and the merchants and the merchant marines have profited tremendously through the import of various goods, various luxury goods they are listed there. Uh, All of those things are are pure luxury goods. They have all benefited from this. And Rome, the city, and the wealthy in the empire have, have been incredibly wealthy, have lived in extreme excess luxury. A couple of the emperors, just a couple things I'll note that uh, Vitellius, who was an emperor for less than one year, is said to have spent the equivalent of $20 million on food in that one year. Nero, his banquets, they would spend the equivalent of $100,000 on roses for decorations. Rome had an insatiable appetite for opulence and luxury. Local political leaders, the kings of the earth, would sacrifice the well-being, the common good of their citizens for the sake of of their own wealth. Craig Keener writes this, landowners in Asia used so much land to export items like wine that Asia's cities had to import grain from Egypt to the south or from the Black Sea area to the north. Consequently, the landowners profited. They became incredibly wealthy, but everyone else had to pay higher prices for basic food needs. What we see fleshed out in this central part of this passage is clearly the oppressive economic policies and practices of Rome. Achieving for Rome incredible wealth. But incredible wealth and luxury for a few. For the few who played the game. For the few who had the means. Ridiculous wealth. While many people in the surrounding provinces and nations were oppressed were used and struggled. See, Rome exported nothing. Rome exported only their armies to keep the peace while they raped the earth. They raped the nations. They took and took and took some more. Lusting always for more with an insatiable appetite for more. The last part of our text, part four, centers on a prophetic, symbolic act. We encounter this second angel in our text, verse 21. Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea. We we see this sort of thing happening throughout scriptures. These these acted parables, if you will, a prophetic uh, act that that symbolizes or or reenacts in some way some reality. I mean, we see this in in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah uh, walks around naked for three years in order to symbolize the exile that is going to happen for Egypt and Cush. 
Uh, Jeremiah is instructed in, in the book of Jeremiah to take a lump of clay, draw the city of Jerusalem on it, put it down, and then use his body to lay siege to Jerusalem. I mean, this sort of thing happens. That's what's going on in the New Testament when Agabus, the prophet, comes to Paul and takes Paul's own belt and ties his hands and says, this is what's going to happen to you. Jesus going to the temple, the cleansing of the temple story, I would suggest, is exactly this. Far from being this massive event, I mean, remember, Israel was under Roman rule. There could be no huge ruckus without soldiers coming in. Jesus went in flipping tables and made a, a scene. Don't get me wrong. But, but that was about a symbolic act of judgment. This is what's going to happen to Jerusalem. And surely it did. In 70 AD, Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. Uh, this is a normal thing, this prophetic act, an acted parable. That's what we see here. Now in the hands of an angel, an angel picks up this large millstone, throws it into the sea and says, with such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. And then verse 22 and following makes the sobering point that all the sounds of life and joy will no longer be found in Rome. No music, no workers, no food preparation, no light of a lamp, no sound of celebration, no bride or groom. Indeed, Rome will be a haunt for wild animals. It will be destroyed. It will fall under God's judgment. What is fascinating thing to note is that when John writes this, the whole chapter, all of this, yet remains in the future. He stands on this island and declares the doom of Rome when Rome stands at its mightiest and most glorious point. But he declares that, that God will, Rome will be judged by God for her oppressive economic practices and policies, for her ill-gotten wealth, for her pride and arrogance, and yes, also because within her the blood of the prophets is the blood of the prophets and of God's holy people. So what does this mean for us today? With regards to this chapter, New Testament scholar Gordon Fee says these words, we are not comfortable with this chapter. We're not comfortable with this. Uh, this is less a text about the future. Yes, it speaks of Rome's judgment that is coming. It speaks of it in terms that it is so certain that we can speak about it already past tense. Yes, that is true. But, but what is central in this text is God's judgment upon Rome because of her economic practices. This is a prophetic word to the church. A prophetic word to the church in Asia, the seven churches that originally received this. Remember, as a discipleship manual, Jesus is warning them of a time of great suffering. And if they don't play the game, if they don't engage in, in the, the cult of the emperor, if they don't worship Caesar as Lord and Savior, then they will be excluded. Remember, they won't get the mark of the beast. They won't be able to do commerce. They have to play the game in order to survive and thrive economically. And Jesus is warning the church not to get in bed with Rome, to be faithful, not to compromise. This is a prophetic word calling the churches, not only in Asia, but the churches throughout the century. We need to hear this word, come out of her, my people. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. We are encouraged to be faithful. We are encouraged not to compromise with the harlot. Now, there is so much that could be said, and quite honestly, I wish today more than most Sundays that we could circle up our chairs and have our discussion time that we used to have pre-COVID. There's so much that I'd love to explore with you. 
First, we, we need to recognize the reality that we live in Babylon. We need to realize the truth that we wake up every day behind enemy lines. We live in a world. We live in a country. We live in a country shaped not by the values of Jesus Christ, but shaped by the values of the harlot. On a personal level, we are daily bombarded with messages telling us about all the stuff we need, about all the experiences we've got to have, about all these things that are promising satisfaction and joy and fulfillment, and you need this. We're bombarded with that constantly, daily. We're inundated with, with offers to, to, to experience instant gratification. I mean, why wait if we can borrow? The, the debt levels in Canada are, are off the charts. People borrow and borrow and borrow to buy stuff that they need, or so they're told. We invest in the market, in corporations that operate in some very ungodly ways. We're counseled to save up our nest egg for retirement. Put away money so that we can, we can do what the world does. You know, Freedom 55 or whatever it is. We do realize, don't we, that retirement isn't a biblical concept. Certainly there are seasons in life. Things slow down, things change. But, but the, the, the image of retirement that is foisted upon us is not a biblical idea. Babylon seduces us to lust for more and more, to pursue things that we don't need to the point that we don't even know what need is. It's about desire. That's just a few thoughts on a personal level, but on a systemic level, there's much that can be said. Corporations seek to maximize profits. Consumers seek lower and lower prices. Who gets shafted? the laborers overseas in some developing nation as we import and import and import? Here's what one, one reporter writes about abuses. Corporations that have moved their factories to the Philippines. Here's what she writes. Many of the zone factories are run according to iron fist rules that systemically break Philippine labor laws. Some employers, for instance, keep bathrooms padlocked except during two 15-minute breaks during which time all the workers have to sign in and out so management can keep track of their non-productive time. Seamstresses at a factory sewing garments for the Gap, the Guess, and Old Navy told me that sometimes they have to resort to urinating in plastic bags under their machines. This happens in our world. We live in Babylon. Brands like Nike give hundreds of millions of dollars to overpaid athletes. Shareholders demand increased profits while the people making their products live in utter poverty. Last October, some of you perhaps heard this news story, a general manager of an NBA team, Daryl Morey, sent out one tweet in support of some of the democracy protests in Hong Kong. That upset the communist Chinese government. And here's what David Whitley writes about that in the Orlando Sentinel. The Chinese Communist Party started pulling NBA games off TV and merchandise off shelves. With its multi-billion dollar relationship threatened, the NBA quickly bowed in subservience and sent Morey to re-education camp. You can't say those things. 
He can't call out nations that violate human rights because it's going to hurt the bottom line. Markets crash and governments bail out giant corporations. CEOs still collect their multi-million dollar salaries and the average Joe loses his house. There are so many more examples like this where, where money and wealth and luxury and excess are valued and pursued at the cost of people. Men and women created in the image of God. People for whom Christ came. I've heard it suggested that due to COVID and Canadian household debt levels that there's going to come a season in the not-too-distant future where there are a whole bunch of foreclosures. And you know, that will be an opportunity for people who have wealth to, to snap up homes for cheap and sell them for more and make more. Let me ask you a question. What would it look like for the church to come out of Babylon? What would it look like for the church to buy those foreclosures and sell them back to the families that lost them at a loss so that they could keep their homes? What would it look like for the church to be the church, to, to live by a different set of values economically? I've heard a couple stories of churches in the United States. They have a very different medical system, and people there often are weighed down by medical debt. I've read several stories of churches that have paid off all of the medical debt in their community to the tune of millions of dollars. That, that's what it looks like for the church to come out of Babylon, to say we will live by a different economic system. The, the reality is we, 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 can't, we can't physically leave Babylon. We, we, we live here, and where are we going to go in the world where there are not oppressive economic policies and practices, but we can live differently. But we, need, we, we, we must not just throw our hands in the air and say, well, since where we live, we can't do anything. No, Jesus' word to us is come out of her. Come out of her. Do not share in her sins. Now, I'm no economist, and I know it's far easier to identify the problems than it is to discern the way forward. What would it look like if we took Jesus' words seriously, if we said, Jesus, come, move in us. Convict us of our sin, where we have valued money, where we have pursued wealth in ungodly ways that have, in fact, oppressed and abused people. What would it look like, Jesus, would, would you empower us to use our wealth to bless, to serve, to live out the values of your kingdom in this community and in our spheres of influence? What would that look like for us? In Micah 6, 8, the prophet says this, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? To act justly. To love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. What if the church, what if we as disciples of Jesus said enough? What if we came out of Babylon rejecting the economic practices of a world that is pursuing luxury and opulence and lusting for more and more and more? What if we embrace the values of Jesus? Jesus who being rich became poor for us. Jesus who came from heaven and became a man and lived 
a life of perfect obedience and went to the cross and suffered in our place so that we might one day enter into the new Jerusalem. Jesus, in his love for us, has given everything so that we might follow him, that we might be recreated as women and men made in his image, to look like him, to be transformed by his spirit within us, to live as a community of the redeemed in this world, that we would look... It would be a marvelous compliment for people in this neighborhood to go, I don't know what's going on there. I don't know what they're on, but they're really weird. They're really different than anything I've ever seen. We would be so transformed by Jesus and his spirit that we, that we would live out the values of the new Jerusalem and not of the great Babylon. May Christ work in us. May he give us wisdom. May he give us courage. May he give us joy in him and living as his disciples faithfully behind enemy lines. Amen.